Podcasting straight from North Carolina is Dr. Jennifer Eichner-Lowry sharing her author journey with you. Jen Lowry writes is a place where amazing things happen for authors and readers together. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate podcast host. Jen is just the bird singing the song. She is a published author, educator, homeschool mama, life coach, and dreamer. Join her on the daily journey of discovering what this writing life is all about. Let's see what she will be led by the Holy Spirit to talk about today. Here's Jen. Thanks for supporting my Jen Lowry Writes podcast. My purpose is to inspire and encourage others to chase after their writing goals with faith and courage. By hitting the support this podcast button and with your monthly contribution of 99 cents, $4.99 or $9.99, you are helping me chase after mine. Hey everybody, welcome to Jen Lowry Writes. Today you can see that I am so honored and blessed to welcome two fabulous ladies on the panel today to share their book. Check it out, guys. We are going to be talking about this suffragist playbook and I'm hugging this book. I'm five-starring it right away, even before we begin. And I will highly encourage you to get this for your child your classroom, library, um, museums need to carry this book, homeschool families need to have copies of this book. So I am just so honored to have Rebecca and Lucinda here with me today. And I want to tell you guys a little bit about them. So Rebecca Boggs Roberts here with me is the author of Suffragists in Washington, D.C., the 1913 Parade and the Fight for the Vote and Historic Congressional Cemetery. She has been many things including a journalist, producer, tour guide, forensic anthropologist, event planner, political consultant, jazz singer, and radio talk show host. Currently, she is a program coordinator for Smithsonian Associates, where she has made it a personal mission to highlight the history of our capital city. She lives in Washington with her husband, three sons, and a big fat dog, who I hope that we do get to hear bark. (laughs) Now, Lucinda Robb is with us below, and she was the project director for Our Mothers Before Us, Women and Democracy, 1789 to 1920 at the Center for Legislative Archives. The project rediscovered thousands of overlooked original documents and produced a traveling exhibit an education program highlighting the role of women in American democracy. She also helped organize the National Archives celebration of the 75th anniversary of the 19th Amendment in 1995. She lives in Virginia with her husband, three children, one dog, and more than 500 Pez dispensers. Welcome, Rebecca and Lucinda. Thank you so much for having us. Okay, so... First, I want to tell you, thank you for the work that and the care and the love that you put into the Suffragist Playbook. From beginning to end, it is just this historical journey, but it's also a place where anyone, youth, middle school, high school students who are looking to evoke change have a place to start. But it's also for us adults as well, because a lot of adults to have a voice and oftentimes go, wow, but I'm in my small little space. 
you reach into that small space. I find that it's not about maybe big platforms all the time, like the suffrage movement, but it's small spaces, small steps. And that's the hope of this book, that it can be in your community. It can be in your school, your state, your nation, your country, wherever it is that you need to start, you've given them a guide. And I just thank you for that. Well, I'm so glad that that's the way it comes across because that yeah, and actually Lucinda completely gets the credit for that. We had both done a fair amount of scholarly research on the suffrage movement. And it was Lucinda who said, you know, young readers really need a way to understand this history that isn't just a dumbed down version of an adult book. She needs, you know, we need to figure out a way to make it relevant um, and vital so that people learn the history, not just because of, you know, it's sort of take your medicine, it's morally good to know your history, but because they won. And if you also want to be active in politics, you could do a lot worse than looking towards their example. So it was Lucinda who first said, you know, we really need to figure out how to make this um, history accessible and meaningful and relevant and fun and exciting. Um, and that's where the suffragist playbook came from. And you did that by making it an approachable way, the way that you organize the book. It's so approachable and it's digestible. So when I was reading it, I was going, you know, when I see that this is really geared maybe towards the young adult population, I was thinking my middle schooler, my, my younger child who says, you know, mom, there's this thing that's going on and, and how can I try to change the way that that's being viewed and talked about, you know, now you've given me as a parent a way that I can share step by steps with him to make change, even in his pocket of an online world that he has, even in like a gaming community, um, when he's trying to stand up for something that is right. Or, you know, to me, this starts, this could be 10 and up conversations that families can have that teachers can use to help spearhead those kind of vital conversations. Well, I, I appreciate what you said just a minute ago about the fact that it was for adults too, because I have to confess that um, when I first started with this idea, um, I did it because one of my friends who is, you know, knows a lot about a lot of different things. The anniversary of the suffrage uh, 19th Amendment was coming up and she admitted to me uh, that she didn't know anything about it. She couldn't name one suffragist. And I thought, well, that's just because, you know, you haven't had that history before. So I, I sometimes in my mind think of it as the girlfriend's guide to suffrage uh, because we do want it to be fun. We did very much want it to be conversational and, and a little bit, uh, you know, not exactly lighthearted, but we did want people to read it and think these are real people mm -hmm. that you can sit down and have a cup of coffee with or hang out with, and they're going to give it to you straight. You know, this is how it is. And, um, and history doesn't have to be stuffy. Uh, it, it, it's great. I think both Becca and I, particularly coming from, from different backgrounds, we're used to thinking about sort of the big picture and, and very often how do, how do things play out in real people's lives? And, um, and what the suffrage movement did that was so impressive to us is that these were ordinary people, ordinary women, but some wonderful men too, who managed mm -hmm. to make a big difference. Now, it did not happen right away. And I think, um, you know, no activist 
uh, today is going to say that things are happening as fast as they would like them. And and the suffragists could really tell them a thing about that because, you know, it took them uh, 72 years if you start the movement back from Seneca Falls in 1848 for women to get the 19th Amendment, which outlawed um, saying that gender was a remit reason that women couldn't vote and essentially gave women across the country the vote. Um, there's some exceptions the way that played out in different places. But it took a long time. A lot of important things happened along the way. And women learned to become more full civic citizens along the way. You know, when they first started out, and we talk about this in the book, um, it was considered incredibly controversial for women to speak in public. That wasn't something they did. In fact, you know, the idea that you're doing a, a podcast, oh my gosh, that would have just been you wild rebel you. I know. And the teacher pay, you bring that up in here too. Oh, oh yeah. I yeah. mean, there, there's one point where Susan B. Anthony and how she first starts to think this is an issue I care a lot about is when she goes to a teacher conference and they have a debate in front of her, which they do not think that she should be able to weigh in on about whether or not women should get paid as much as men for doing the exact same job as a teacher. So it's amazing how that really made her think, wait a minute, this is not right. <laughs> So I will tell you as well, you need you need a website for kids to go on so they can navigate the tips. They can navigate some extensions, some additional research. But you also need that button that we can push that says the girlfriend's guide. <laughs> because as soon as you said that, I could see, you know, the parent, the mom really also needing additional resources to go along. And I know we've got Google. I know that, you know, but you would vet it. You would have it there for us and that we could trust it. But I'm telling you, I learned so much, so much personally by reading this book. And I will admit there is a shame factor to that because as a woman, I need to know more about women's history. And when I started to read, I was like, Oh, wow. Now I've got more research. Now I've got to do this. Now I've got to do that. I've got to go out. And I signed up for an event that is going on this weekend. I don't know if you guys have heard about it, but the Alice Paul Institute is actually holding a suffrage video showing over the weekend on Saturday. It's like two o'clock. And my kid, my, my freshman's like, mom, we've got games all day Saturday to watch. And I'm like, well, uh, we're watching this first. We're going to watch it um, because he's also he's Native American. And so he does need to know about the Native American voice and how that is portrayed as well. So, like, I love how you say about this work is the basis. This is the beginning, the foundation. But we have so much work that's left to be done, which which you give the hope to our youth. You give that hope and you know how powerful the voice is that we have today in our system. Our children, they are amazing. I am witness to it every single day when my students just open up their brilliant minds and say the things that they, you know, that they wish could be, that they want to be. And then I see them going out and making those small steps. It's like, okay, so guys, I pulled your book up and I'm like, okay, guys, look at this. I know a lot of you care so passionately about a lot of different topics. Here's a great guide for you. And that's something else. The women that you highlight, 
in the book. It's not just a one sided. We're only talking about the suffrage movement. You bring up temperance. You bring up the abolitionists. You bring up so many different sides of these women and they were fighting for prison reform and they were fighting for wages. And, and it's when you have a passion for equality and what is right. Uh, that you're showing also the youth that you don't just have to be in one vein. You can stand up for many different types of practices that fall within the same belief system. We One of the things, oh, go ahead, Becca, I think you were going to say. No, I was just going to agree with you. You know, like you, I have teenagers and um, you, you said we're the hope for youth. The youth are the hope for me. You know, I think that I am uh, delighted all the time by how smart and ambitious and idealistic and good and decent the next generation is. And, you know, I can't ignore, Jen, that we are talking on a day. I live in Washington, D.C. We just got a curfew mm -hmm. because armed protesters who object to the election have broken into the U.S. Capitol, overwhelmed law enforcement, broken through windows and stormed into the U.S. Capitol. That is horrifying. That is not the way you affect change. Young people, it's not them. It's grownups. It's people my age doing that. It's people in their 50s. So I, you know, it is not that I object to people wanting to change the world. I think everybody should want to change the world. The people who came to Washington today to want to make their voices heard, that's what Washington is for. They were literally walking in the footsteps of suffragists as they marched down Pennsylvania Avenue. And had they stopped there, I would be cheering them, even if I don't agree with them. But what they have gone on to do shows you how incredibly idealistic and strong protesters who don't do that are, right? The right. people who have stopped short of resorting to those tactics. And so when we have the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas survivor kids marching here, when we have the climate change activist kids marching here, when we have, you know, Malala Yousafzai and her followers marching here who are teenagers, they are so much more effective and so much better behaved than the people here today. But they also, like for you with this book, they've had models too that they have no looked question. out for that effective change. And that's what you've laid out here is, no, the suffrage movement was not perfect. And there were flaws. And these were people that had some flawed issues that we do have to lean in and talk about and talk about this realistically and the whole picture. But here is a model that you can learn from, that you can learn what not to do, what to do in the world. And the way that you lay it out, that's why this book is needed more than ever. Because what are people seeing? Flashes on Instagram, flashes on social media, news clips. You know, they need the history. They need the models. They need to know the appropriate ways to get your voice heard and listened to, respected over time. They need that never give up, like you talk about that right. in the book, but there's a way to never give up. Right, and, and it's frustration. I understand that it's frustration that leads people to break a law. You know, if you feel like the systems have not worked for you for a very long time. And I think that's a real role we can play with this book is to encourage people to understand how the system works and how to fight within it. Um, and to be patient and to learn from your mistakes and the mistakes of others. And, and there's certain things that seem to happen again. I mean, I'm reminded of the fact that uh, uh, some abolitionists spoke in the brand new Philadelphia uh, hall that had built and it 
literally the mob burned it down the next day. Um, and that was the among some of the most famous abolitionists and women suffragists of the time, the Grimke sisters. So some things don't change. It, And I think one of the things that's helpful about this book, or at least I find um, oddly reassuring, is that there, there are some things that you can pull back and you can see the big picture of history and how all of the pieces fit in. And you can say, okay, what role do I want to play in this? And how do I want to interact? And, you know, Becca and I have a lot of time to talk about people who say, well, you have your radicals and you have your moderates for any movement. And again, we, we tried very hard, even, even on the cover of the book, not to say any one movement particular. We really wanted to say the idea of getting involved. Um, and you have your people who do the things that that uh, get the most attention, but very often it's your moderates, and I and I sometimes say they move the goalpost. But it's your moderates um, who are often, you know, sometimes a little bit more boring, but they're the ones who actually move the ball. And uh, and I like to talk about Frances Willard, who is one of my. Uh, Nobody knows about her. I mean, even if you are someone who knows a lot of women's history, chances are that Frances Willard is is not going to be some name that you're going to recognize. But back in her day, she was, and this we're talking about the 1870s, 1880s through 1889 when she died of flu, very young. Um, she she was the best, probably the best known woman in the United States. One of the best known women in the world after Queen Victoria, she was the president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which was the largest women's group in the, again, in the entire country and probably in the entire world. They had hundreds of thousands of women. And I think today we sometimes, you know, we look back at history and after prohibition wasn't very successful, there's a tendency to sort of laugh at people who are involved in the temperance movement. But Back then, it was a much different world for women. They didn't have the ability, um, there was, they didn't have the kind of protections that we have today. We didn't have the kind of social services. Um, women weren't allowed, if you were married, your husband owned everything. You weren't allowed, your husband could legally beat you. If you did leave an abusive marriage, um, it was very hard to get a divorce, but then there are almost no ways for you to support yourself and your children. I mean, it was so alcohol and alcohol abuse was a really big problem and particularly more threatening. And it's not to say it's not a problem now, but it was particularly difficult back then. So this was something that a lot of women were involved in and because it was considered OK for women. Um, you know, they weren't supposed to, to speak in public, but it was a moral issue. And the idea was that women did have a role in morality. And so this became a way for women to have a public voice. And Frances Willard managed to convince a lot of her very, uh, her large conservative evangelical followers to get behind suffrage because she didn't just say, this is, a you know, you should have the right to vote. She said, these are the good things that we can do if we have the right to vote. And I think that's a very persuasive argument. And that is particularly interesting to me um, and, I'm, and I'll be curious to see how much we we use that going forward. I think, you know, sometimes the the protests are are get the most attention, but a lot of times it's that the harder work, but the more lasting work of persuading and changing people's minds and saying, you know, this is the good that you can do with what you having the vote or whatever it is that you want to do. This is the good accomplishment that we all can get behind that really does make the difference. So Frances Willard, uh, I think, is a fascinating example uh, of somebody to to learn from from the from back then. And, you know, how can we use her to how can we follow that that example today? 
And, and, and that whole premise of sort of changing people's minds, it's a lot harder to measure, right? Like you can say, oh, they passed the 19th Amendment. That happened. That's this very visible accomplishment. But all along the way, in the 72 years of the movement, um, smaller things were happening legislatively, but also people's minds were changing, right? The whole role of women publicly was incrementally, little by little, so as you didn't notice at the time, uh, ultimately going from women couldn't even applaud in public to women uh, exercising the right to vote. And in the hundred years since, you know, women being in public office um, and women being CEOs and women, you know, uh, being heads of universities and things that were unimaginable back then. So it's not just these sort of big tentpole events. Those are what we celebrate with anniversaries and those are what we learn in history class. But that kind of little by little changing the social norms to the point where it's not outrageous to consider that women could exercise the franchise um, is really what the movement did. And that I think can be really hard for contemporary activists to notice, right? Because what they want is some big thing, right? No. And they want the big goal and, and they want to no. anything <laughs> short, right? They want it tomorrow. And anything short of that feels like a frustrating failure. Yeah. Yeah, my mom has a pillow that says, God, give me patience, and I want it right now. <laughs> yeah. I thought that's, that's one of my favorites. <laughs> but it's like planting the seeds. It's like that's what they were doing. We're planting the seeds with every letter that they wrote, mm -hmm. petitioned, with every speech, with every contact and call that they, you know, that they put in with their contacts. It's like everything that they were building Whereas with youth today, everything is so automatic and it's so like we said now. And so I think that this book, the way that you have presented the history, but also have shown the model and kind of have given them the practical guide. You are also saying, let's be realistic here. Let's understand what you know it takes to change someone's mind. Wow. And let's do it in a way where, you know, they thought about what they were going to wear. So how it would be displayed in the newspaper, like they had it down to. And speaking of, OK, Francis Willard, you guys, I marked something in here because I'm like, this must this must be an inspiration big time for the way that you set it up. Because on page 103, OK, I need my glasses. Here we go. I got to put these glasses. All right, I'm going to back you up. I'm going to get on 1032. <laughs> oh, aren't you good to have a copy of the book right next to you? Oh, love it. So Francis Willard created manuals. Yes. Okay, so here we go. Um, what does this sound like? Titled Hints and Helps in Our Temperance Work. Um, <laughs> guide to Changing the World. Let's <laughs> and later ones for girls and boys, because this is for girls and boys. You would think, wait, this is for the stuff. No, this is for every bit of a youth because you know it takes both on both sides to get the work done and i felt like that was a good a surprise moment like there's a part in the book where it says look we can't ignore those men that were supportive it took those men to make those changes so oh, oh yeah they're the girls boys yeah. and great men from the beginning with Frederick Douglass, um, who stood up at Seneca Falls. And there's every reason to believe that Elizabeth Cady Stanton's resolution asking for the vote, which was very controversial in 1848. I love you, Lawrence, but not right now. Um, sorry. <laughs> That's mine. He came up last night asking for banana pudding. I'm telling you, it happened. <laughs> 
I love it. <laughs> I love the discreet mute. You know, yeah. I, I don't want to take a chance for Lucinda to talk about Frances Willard away because Lucinda is such a heavy fangirl on the on Frances Willard that it's now become a running joke between us. And the Frances Willard house has, in fact, invited us to speak, which is like the pinnacle of Lucinda's career. So. If that's recorded, y'all better post that. I can hear y'all all because I want to see that recording of you speaking there. That was just. That was my 11 year old who had something he really had to show me, which which brings me to what I was going to say. <laughs> have been important in the movement. Uh, uh, and my 11 year old son has heard a lot about this now. Men have been important in the movement from the very, very beginning. Um, and in fact, towards the very end, it finally comes to pass. And I love this story. You know, trying to get an amendment, constitutional amendment passed is like, the, the um, Iron Man of an Hawaii triathlon version of, of legislation. It's super, super hard. Um, it, it's just, and it's exhausting and it takes forever. So first, you know, it, it takes all of these years and Andrew Sargent, the representative from, the Senator from California is introducing it every year into the Senate and it dies and it dies and dies. Finally, it's picking up steam. And finally, when it gets introduced in the house and they vote on it in 1918 and it passes, it only passes by one vote. And let me tell you, there are four guys, and this, I literally used to tear up when I would think about this. There are four men who are brought in on stretchers to vote for suffrage. Because remember, you can't just have a majority, you have to have two thirds. Um, so they had four men brought in on stretchers, including one who's, whose shoulder has been broken and he won't let it be set until he can go ahead and vote for suffrage. And he stays there and sort of, you know, uses his, I'm in pain, but you really need to vote for suffrage, you know, to guilt everybody else into it. Um, but, and then you have a man who comes down from the, from the, from the deathbed of his wife, who, who basically tells him is her, you know, you go vote for suffrage. And he goes in to honor her. He goes down and votes for suffrage and turns around to, you know, right away to plan her funeral. I mean, and then all of that drama and it doesn't pass the Senate. Um, then Wilson has a special, he convenes everybody back again because he's just ready to get this done with. Um, it finally passes the House and the Senate and then it goes out to all the states and the first states are like, woo woo, we're gonna get it done. And you know, there are several racing to see who can get it first. And you know, it's it's Wisconsin. And then, and then it starts to stutter and fail. And I am afraid to say that my home state of Virginia did not pass the the uh, 19th Amendment until 18, uh, excuse me, 1952. It was a little bit late, um, but it looks like it's gonna fail. And it comes down to the last state of Tennessee. And there it just goes crazy and everybody is into town. And, and because so many temperance people, women were involved in for it, you can imagine that the liquor industry was not for women's suffrage. Um, so they were actively against it. Interestingly enough, a lot of women were against, not the majority, but women were against it because women aren't monolithic. There are gonna be a lot of different views. And, and there's intense pressure on everyone to vote. And there's this one. And they're all staying at the same hotel. This is what oh, yeah. I you know, it's, it's, it's just August in Nashville. It's a million billion degrees. They're all staying in the same hotel. They're all in and out of each other's pockets. The liquor lobby is getting legislators too drunk to vote. It's a crazy, <laughs> crazy scene. 
Um, and, and it comes down and it's, they call it the war of the roses. So yes, I love that. And, and, and the, all, if you're, if you're anti-suffrage, you're wearing a red rose. And if you're pro-suffrage, you're wearing a yellow rose. So, so everybody's lined up and they think they know, and they think they're going to be able to, to table this and get this out of, out of, you know, they're going to end it in the house and they're going through the roll call. And this young 24 year old legislator, Harry Burns, he's, he's brand new. He's only 24 years old. He's wearing a red rose for heaven's sakes. He gets up and surprises everybody and votes for suffrage. And then later on, he comes out and he actually gives a bunch of really good reasons why, including how he's going to be viewed by history. But the only one anybody pays any attention to is he says, I'm a good Southern boy and a good Southern boy knows he should do what his mother tells him to do. And I tell my son that he did not listen. <laughs> it's, great. it's such a great way though. And that's how, you know, you're right there at the end. I had that one bookmarked too. <laughs> to highlight the power of storytelling and yep. knowledge, storytelling and remembering, storytelling and making this book matter. That's what you do from the first pages. You are telling a magnificent story. Well, you know, it's so dramatic and it's so it has so many amazing characters that you have to work to make it boring, right? If you were telling suffrage history in a dull way, like you had to try hard to do that. Exactly. These amazing women who are funny and weird and surprising and they're doing these bold things um, and they're creative and they're unbelievably foresighted for their time. Uh, and it's easy to dismiss them because you see the pictures with the hats and the sashes and they seem so long ago. But these women would have killed it on Twitter, right? I mean, they made messages go viral by sewing them onto banners and standing in front of the White House. Yeah. Imagine what they would have done with the tools current activists have. Um, and so if you if you are bored by suffrage history, then someone is telling it wrong. <laughs> you, you don't have this book. So <laughs> and I got to say, I, I really the suffragists, they're, they speak to me right now because um, they, they were all those wonderful things, but they are also ordinary and flawed and they're dealing with a lot of the same problems in a different kind of way and one of my favorite quotes in the book is from elizabeth Cady stanton who was sort of the thomas jefferson of the suffrage movement in the sense that she wrote she did all of the great writing but she also has seven kids and in fact i want to say her seventh child was born when she was 43 and he weighed 12 pounds <laughs> oh i'm just oh my gosh i hear that and and she writes to to susan b anthony her friend and he says you have to come here and help me out because she says you know i'm right now i'm trying to get everybody into clothes and she literally says at one point and i've got to get them fed and i've got to get them shoes and i got to find them a tutor and i got to take them to the dentist and i'm reading this i'm thinking hey, a dentist back then i had no idea <laughs> but i mean that's exactly what i think a lot of moms are in dealing with today how do you juggle all of these things especially since so many of us are 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 doing it at home and not by choice <laughs> um how do you juggle all of these things changing the world with with the with just the everyday life that that comes along and and that's why i think it's so fun to see how did how did real people back then handle those situations and that's it's also i think friend's guide right yes, we're dealing with all of this and we also as women have a voice 
Yes. Yet we often, you know, as mothers, we are taking care of so many other priorities and our careers and everything that we do. We often don't share the voice that matters within us. We may not have that opportunity. We're not pushing ourselves into those spaces because we are running to the piano lessons and doing all of this. Right? And so the girlfriend's guide could really help us moms navigate you know, or this guide to me when I was reading it, I was like, wait, this actually goes towards the author platform. Like pay attention to how you're presenting, set your goals, you know, who are your people? Get an endorsement. Go ahead and do like all of the tips that you were going, I was like, wait, okay, this applies to activism. This applies to how I can help raise my children. This can also help apply for my author life. Yeah, life lessons. <laughs> Like, yeah, it's just great lessons, you know, to take away. And I, we got sidetracked on that wonderful story. But I want to tell you how else y'all are like Francis Willard. So I guess <laughs> Linda needs to hear this because <laughs> it says that she she later wrote once for girls and boys explaining how to become politically active. OK, so you go ahead and check off that box. Okay? She cloaked her advice in comforting, familiar language. And when you use like girl power and you do your parentheses and you say things like, I just love it. It is so personal. <laughs> the way that you wrote it, it was comforting. It was so between me and you. It was that language, that familiarity. And it wasn't coming from a mom's voice of I'm telling you to do this. I'm telling it is a we voice. And that's what you guys pulled off in this. And so, oh, okay, so another, relieved. <laughs> let's just go ahead and check that one, Francis Wheeler Juniors. Let's see. <laughs> and covered all the details. These are the flowers you should use to decorate your meeting. Oh, yeah. An invitation to your pastor to attend your temperance gathering. And so at the end of each chapter, you're giving us flowers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think I think we set out definitely to make it approachable and conversational, but also, you know, we're friends um, and we wanted this be in that kind of collaborative, hey, we should all know about this. We should all learn from it. Um, we voice, as you say. But also, I think, frankly, it's one of the joys of writing about women's history is that they're, they're not anywhere near as self-important as the men. You know, I mean, I think that a lot of men think they're going to go down in history and so they write letters that sound like they're already a marble statue writing it right i mean it's just unbearable whereas these women had no idea we'd be reading their mail 100 years later and so it's like chatty and gossipy and you know elizabeth katie Stanton is talking about the kids putting corks on the baby to see if he'll float and it's just it feels so much realer and yeah. closer in history because these women weren't so impressed with themselves. Yeah. So that that is a great segue, I will say, to the next part of the bookmark that I have, which is page 25, Lucinda. But I would say, again, who would have thought we would have been reading their diary entries? Who would have been thought? And when I read this one, I marked it, took a picture of it. I'm going to keep it on my, I've, I've got probably like 3,000 photos on my phone. I will be honest. But <laughs> these are not going away because the photos that I took, they matter. 
and I need to be reminded. When the book goes on the shelf and I pull it out again to look at the tips, I'm also going to have my favorite parts on my phone because these things matter. So I've got to read this one. So she would later write to a friend, and this is about Susan B. Anthony. Believe in yourself and your powers to speak as well as write. So don't say no to a single invitation to speak, but just prepare yourself and read. If you want to, or when the time comes, drop your paper and talk its contents. Tell the story, two exclamation points. That is all I have done these 40 years. That's all she has done these 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> Tell your story. Believe in yourself. It's like I needed her to say that to me. Like, like we need these as reminders, too, in our own life. And when I'm just imagining, I read the backstory, Rebecca, of how you wrote the first book and got the phone call saying, what can you ladies do next? <laughs> and it was that book that then kind of opened up the discussions for the suffrage movement for youth, because you guys are right. It's like that much in a book. Moved. I used to work at the National Archives, so I would deal with a lot of the original documents. And I'd read a lot of the histories. And then when I read Becca's book, I was like, this is so much fun. <laughs> everything written like this? I love it. And I, and I would say, uh, I think really the idea for, for the style of the book comes a lot from Becca. Because it is, you know, she is just sort of no nonsense. And, you know, we have a lot of running jokes. Um, this is the first project we had ever done together. And, uh, and Becca will say that she, she never met a first draft she didn't like, and <laughs> we'd still be editing it. So, so we balance off each other with the, with the writing. But I, I hadn't thought about, you know, what we're just saying, um, the, the quote from Anthony, that, that would work for writing as well as activism. Mm -hmm. and, if you want, and I hadn't really thought about that before. That's a great sort of, uh, and as someone who I really do have a hard time writing. <laughs> Well, you also, when you factor know. in that she, Anthony, was not a confident public speaker, oh, you know, she she came to it very reluctantly. And so for her to be saying, just get out there, say yes to the engagement, tell your story from someone where, where it wasn't her first strength, where it wasn't something she was craving at all, is a double lesson of getting over yourself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes pushing yourself, you know, outside of your comfort zone, not only is that a place where you can grow, but that's the only place where you're going to be heard. Oh, if, if you had polled all the suffragists in the first wave of the movement and said, who is going to be the big name everybody remembers? I can tell you it's not going to be Susan B. Anthony. <laughs> right. Because she did. She had a lazy eye and she was very self-conscious about how she looked. Um, and in fact, that's a reason why you always see, you know, She's in profile um, all the time, not every time, but most of the time when you see pictures of her, she's she's in profile. But she gets, you know, she has her friend, Elizabeth Cady Stanton there. They make this great partnership. They're like Lewis and Clark, um, except not just four years, you know, 40 plus 50. Um, and Su uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton writes these great speeches and Susan B. Anthony gets out there and she does it. And she gives, she estimates, she gives anywhere from 75 to a hundred speeches a year for over 40 years. That is mind boggling to me. That's exhausting. And you're doing that when you can't just hop on a plane. I mean, 
today we can't really just hop on a plane to travel. But but it was so much harder back then. You know, if you have to go by stagecoach, um, or you could take the train, but the train might get stopped in the middle of nowhere because of snow. I mean, you know, she literally. And then you have to take a mule. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly. <laughs> she's getting out there. She's covering tons and tons of distance to do this, and she gets better over time. And at the end of her life, she is she is the person that we know so well that the amendment was named after and she does get a coin um not a very useful coin but she gets a coin all the same um and so she's the best no but it didn't start out that way she started off with a completely different perspective and so in that sense you know a lot of it is just hanging in there and the tenacity to keep mm -hmm. going don't give up you know with her favorite you know quote you know failure is impossible never give up <laughs> I wrote that one down. I also wrote the Pez Company, Lucinda, ah. because I do look at you guys as <laughs> Francis Willard Juniors, but I do believe that Pez's need to be created. So I will let you know that I, if I hear anything back, uh, which I probably won't, but if I hear anything back, I was like, we need a Francis Willard. We need a Sojourner Truth. We need a Susan B. Anthony. You need to look into this. I actually put clips of one of the um, the conversations that you ladies had. It was like a minute clip and it was introducing about um, the inauguration. I think it was like a minute for the Library of Congress, but you could see your presence in the background. <laughs> you don't believe me. You should watch this video and you guys need to make a Pez line. So maybe you could follow up because as we've learned in the book, if you rally. Around... <laughs> well, that, I just want to say that great minds think alike because I have written and I've said they should have a special collection. For just <laughs> I have, you can't see it on the wall, but I have my three Elvis uh, special collection. You have the young Elvis in the army. You have the, uh, the, the rock and roll Elvis and you have Elvis winnings in Vegas. Um, and you know, I have and, and lots of different Pez collections. So I do, I did write them and say that there should be, I didn't include Francis Willard because I thought that that might be too much to hope for. I was going to go with Susan. <laughs> <laughs> you need to go for it. You need to ask for exactly what you want. So send the email, send a new one. <laughs> you're taking these lessons better. Becca, who would you be? So if, if I, if I, if my spiritual sister is a, uh, is, Francis Willard, um, who who of these mar amazing, wonderful, interesting, quirky ladies uh, would Doris Stevens or or who? Yeah, well, I think I think uh, Doris Stevens for sure because she wrote um, Jail for Courage and she um, you know um, Jail for Freedom and and so she was sort of the chronicler of the movement. She's also really funny and witty. But <laughs> I think cool. I have to go with Maud Younger, who no one has ever heard of, but. Maud Younger was the person who collected the card file for the National Women's Party. And the National Women's Party was known for these really attention-getting guerrilla stunts of the parades and the pickets and the hunger strikes, but they backed it up with real homework and the homework was done by Maud Younger. And so she collected these crazy index cards, like 25 cards on every member of Congress. And you can see them in the collection of the Belmont Paul Women's Equality National Monument. And so they not only said like everything he every member had ever said about suffrage, whether his wife or daughter was a suffragist, how he had ever voted on anything. But then it was all these personal gossipy details like he's known to drink. You should talk to him before 5 p.m. or <laughs> his wife is actually the brains of this operation. You should talk to the wife. And so these cards they're to me, that's sort of 
my favorite kind of political activism. Like it's total good girl, do your homework, impeccable research, but also really funny and really insightful and really sort of making the best of what could be a drudgery. Um, and she did it in the service of the more radical wing of the party. Like I would like to think I'd be out there picketing the White House. I probably wouldn't be. I'm a little bit too much of a good, good girl for that kind of behavior. Um, but to do the research for the radical wing, that's right up my alley. <laughs> I, love I loved learning about that. Guys, I've never even heard of these. That's what I'm telling you as a mom, as a woman. Well, I would I would read that and I'm like, no way. Oh my God. <laughs> Please, Jen. Do not feel bad because let me just tell you, you are not alone. I mean, I grew up in Virginia and I sometimes joke, and now Becca's heard me tell this joke too many times. Um, but you've but, heard all my jokes too. Yes. But there are people in Virginia who know the names of more horses in the Civil War than women in the suffrage movement. And it's just because of sort of who writes this history and right. who tells the stories and, and, the Civil War is a very dramatic story, but so is suffrage, and there's a lot of fun stuff in it. And so we're hoping that that uh, after this, you'll know more than um, you know. We do something. I, I did a, a an event with my goddaughter's uh, a Girl Scout troop in the fall, and they did a big outside meeting, and it was the mothers and the daughters, um, and everybody sat on a picnic blanket far apart, and I had a little stereo system, and we did a little internet quiz. So everybody who had their phone would look stuff up, and I said, before you start this, write down the names of any suffragists you can name at all. And and the majority, and again, this is not just the, the fourth graders who are the Girl Scouts, but it's their moms. We had about 35 people spread out over this big area. Um, and most of them, there were a few, but most of them didn't really have any names besides maybe Susan B. Anthony. So that it's the, the good part is hopefully now you'll remember some of these women. And because their stories hopefully are going to stick in your mind and, and be inspirational and be fun. And, and uh, you know, they will stay a little bit longer than, than some of the other stuff. So, uh, so that's I, I love hearing that if you know them now, that's what matters. <laughs> Yes. And embrace that knowing and knowing that I still have a lot more to learn. Oh, and we all do. That oh. we all do. But I now have the tools that I need to get started. Yeah. And it's because of the work that you've done. And I know that you dedicated this book. I have this marked. I dedicate my things to my mama. Um to our mothers, Linda Robb and Cokie Roberts, who taught us the power of women, the importance of history, and the value of friendship. And look at you ladies. I know they would be so super proud of everything. All, like, this is a legacy book, you know? That's what this is. And what are you going to, like, in the future, looking back at this, just continue to, to do the tours about the book, continue to promote? Like, what are some other passion projects that you ladies might have in the works? Do you have anything in the works for the future? I mean, I think, you know, we both have kids and jobs and we're both a little overwhelmed and it's nice to, that we got this book out and we're hoping that it lasts a long time. I think we feel like it's, you know, we, we wanted to get it out in the centennial year, but it's not tied to the centennial. I think the lessons in it will last a long time. So I think we'd both kind of like to build on this book. We, you know, you mentioned resources 
on a website. We've started to put together some educational resources. We do at suffragistplaybook.org is the website. And there's not much up there now beyond bios of us and some pictures, but um, we have been working with some colleagues to be able to put some lesson plans in place uh, and make it so that it's a real educational resource. And I think would really like school libraries to carry it, would really like it to become a curriculum tool. Um, so I think that's kind of our next focus. Wonderful. Unless you've got a secret project, Lucinda. Do you have a secret yeah. project? <laughs> it's such an enjoyable thing to work with uh, with Becca on this project. It's been a lot of fun. Um, and I've learned a lot. Becca has done books before, and this is my first just to be half of. So uh, uh, I, I've loved it. And um, I've actually had my children reading the various different drafts since they are the, my tool. They've been great. They, they've been our best editors. My, my, my daughter, Madeline, will be like, Mom. Nobody writes like this. Nobody talks like this. <laughs> that's what 13-year-olds say to their mom. Although she was 12 when she said it, so it took a while. She's like, no, mom, you can't say that. That, you know, yeah. change this. Um, and a lot of times I did listen to what, because she had some sensible things to say. Um, not everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, ladies, I do want to say how much I absolutely love the Suffragist Playbook. And I love what you're doing out there for education you know, to promote history, women's history, and just continue to do the job because it truly matters. So going on, you know, shows, talking about the book, sending it to libraries, you know, whatever it takes, because it matters. And I just want to thank you both. Oh, um, thank you so much. So everybody, oh, <laughs> there's Madeline. This, this is Madeline, my 14-year-old daughter who, uh, who did, in fact, read every draft multiple times. Yeah, yeah she did. Well, you are an amazing editor, I must say. <laughs> well, so I, I know you're super proud of mom, huh? You super yeah. proud of mom? <laughs> Love. She's very hard. She's I'm a very... good kid. I didn't pay her to say that. Uh, <laughs> Love it. Love it. So everybody, you have to get your copy of the Suffragist Playbook and you've got the website. You've already called that out. We're going to be looking for it for additional resources. But this book is your ultimate guide. And then you can take the lessons that you've learned here. The seeds are planted. The flowers have been presented to you in such a lovely, comforting, personal way in that voice that we can make a difference. We can change the world and I truly believe like you ladies that it does begin with our youth so I just want to thank you both for being here on Jen Lowry writes and I love y'all I want to know more about your speeches in the future and what you're up to so please stay in touch with me so thank, oh, thank you, so, you much. so much and take care and and may it all be a good year for all of us <laughs>So I challenge you today to go out there and write something inspiring and share it with the world. Thanks for joining me on Jen Lowry Writes. You guys have a blessed day.